Good morning, Birdland. I'm Mark Brown. I've been covering the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and hosting this podcast for 84 episodes and counting. It is now November the 20th, 2023. The baseball offseason is wide open. Any player who is a free agent can sign anywhere. Teams can make trades as they choose. And the Orioles, well, you know, just like last year, uh, we will be anxious to see what they end up doing and whether it works out. And some of the moves they made last offseason worked out fine. Others weren't as good. And as we all know, the Orioles went 101-61 and 61 in the 2023 regular season. So the decisions they made about who to bring on to the roster and whether the roster would be good enough certainly were correct. As we talked about on the previous episode last week, the Rule 5 draft deadline and the tender deadline both passed since our last episode. The Orioles ended up choosing not to protect any additional players from next month's Rule 5 draft, and then they also chose not to non-tender any of their arbitration-eligible players, which means that all 17 of the Orioles' arbitration-eligible players are staying with the Orioles organization for now. In the last episode, I did say it was 16. I forgot about outfielder Sam Hilliard, who the Orioles claimed from the Braves on November the 1st. Sorry, Sam and the Hilliard fans out there for forgetting about you. The Orioles now have four open spots on their 40-man roster. That's because they cleared two guys uh, who don't matter off of the 40-man roster before the Rule 5 draft deadline. Uh, I was a little surprised the Orioles did not end up adding anyone, and I was also surprised they didn't non-tender anyone, but I won't be losing any sleep over whether Hudson Haskin is picked in the Rule 5 draft. And as far as tendering everybody, even people who were not any good in 2023, the Orioles, you know, they're in a position where they can wait and see uh, who ends up looking good in spring training next year and then make some decisions from there. It costs them very little to keep fringier guys like Jacob Webb and Keegan Aiken on the roster for now. There could still be trades. I feel like Ramon Urias is a prime candidate to get moved probably for a marginal return. Um, so the fact that they tendered him does not mean they have him in their 2024 infield plans. But the Orioles also can release any of these arbitration-eligible players near the end of spring training if they're not measuring up. And again, that's going to cost them very little. So going back to free agents, you know, on Sunday morning, you probably heard the first big free agent to sign this offseason reached his contract agreement as the Philadelphia Phillies brought back their own free agent pitcher, Aaron Nola, getting giving him a seven-year, $172 million contract that was announced on Sunday afternoon. There is no pending physical. That deal is done. Nola is coming off a bit of a disappointing for him season with a 4.46 ERA. Two years ago, it was worse with a 4.63 ERA. Overall, he does uh, hand out few walks, has a respectable but declining strikeout total. He's allowed 32 home runs and 32 starts this year. His big selling point, though, is 30-plus starts in every full season since 2018, and even in the weird short 2020 season, he started 12 games, which is exactly once every five games for the 60-game season. So I don't know. It's a lot of years for a guy who's going to be going into his age 31 season next year, but he does have a very dependable track record, probably capable of 
better results than he's had over the last three years. Now, part of that is because the Phillies defense has had some challenges, I think, and I don't know that they're going to address those challenges over this offseason. But I don't know. NOLA, uh, it's going to be their problem whether that free agent contract works out or not. Of course, with every public statement made by Mike Elias and John Angelos this year, it's not like you could have ever thought the Orioles were going to play for NOLA. So the fact that he has signed, that doesn't really matter. I think what could matter is that this signing could be an early sign that some of the free agent contracts are going to come in higher than maybe some of the experts predicted. For instance, Fangraphs uh, predicted for Aaron Nola a five-year, $140 million contract, while MLB Trade Rumors had him with a six-year, $150 million contract. So Nola exceeded in both guaranteed dollars and years, those two contract predictions, although he's got a, a slightly lower average annual value than predicted. So I don't know. But if that kind of trend carries over into lower tiers of the market where the Orioles might be playing around, that is the kind of thing that could matter for them. And, you know, I mentioned the starting pitching for this reason, because the Orioles need to sign one, I think, or trade for one. But it's easier to talk about potential signings on a podcast like this, because we all know who is on the market. We know it's the free agents and the free agents will only cost money or in a very small number of cases that probably won't be relevant to the Orioles, a draft pick. And as far as 2024, I think you can sketch out an optimistic, possibly okay starting rotation of, let's say, Kyle Bradish, Grayson Rodriguez, John Means, Dean Kramer, and Tyler Wells. And if you're being optimistic, you might think guys like Cade Povich or Chase McDermott or even like Justin Armbruster could come up from the minors over the course of 2024. It could work out that way, or it might not. John Means, of course, had just four starts this year after his Tommy John recovery and then didn't end up pitching in the playoffs due to a sore elbow. Tyler Wells fell apart after three months. Kramer was perhaps lucky to finish at exactly a 100 ERA+. plus. His FIP was a little higher at a 4.51 or 7% worse than the average pitcher. I think that an Orioles rotation that has... Kramer or Wells as a backup plan is better than one that has both of them as the initial plan. So with that in mind, let's think about some free agent starting pitchers. I'm just going to roll through a number of them from the top of the market on down more towards the bottom. Should the Orioles pay pay for this particular player? Will they pay for this particular player? In the answer to will they is probably no. Should they? Well, yeah, we'll see. Okay. But at the very top, well, okay, not counting Shohei Otani because he's not going to be pitching next year is Japanese sensation Yoshinobu Yamamoto. This 25-year-old righty's posting to MLB has been anticipated for a while. It's expected to happen officially perhaps as soon as today, which will kick off a 45-day window for MLB teams to be able to sign Yamamoto. Uh, it's probably going to be something of a bonkers seeming contract for a guy who does not have any MLB experience. Fangraphs again predicting seven years, $196 million, which works out to $28 million per year. MLB trade rumors thought nine years, $225 million, which is a $25 million per year uh, on average 
number. And the actual cost to teams is going to be more because under the posting system, teams must also pay a release fee to the Oryx Buffaloes, which is the NPB, Nippon Professional Baseball team, that is posting Yamamoto to MLB before he becomes a free agent in Japan. And the release fee, it has different rates depending on the size of the contract. For Yamamoto, let's assume roughly $30 million in fee on top of the contract that is going to be be signed for Yamamoto. So we all know the Orioles are not going to be spending $200 million or more on one pitcher. That said, you know, it is foolish for the Orioles to dismiss it out of hand. Whoever is the person ultimately responsible for that, I think. Uh, The current Orioles payroll commitment for 2024 is about $62 million. They can absorb an AAV of $25 million without even blinking. For Yamamoto specifically, he is such a superstar in Japan that the team that signs him is going to make back a lot of the money just from having expanded sponsorship opportunities, merchandise sales. You know, people are going to be watching a Japanese star on the level of Yamamoto. They're going to be watching his MLB games. Japanese media will be covering the game. Uh, The typical 7.05 p.m. Eastern time game, that's a 9.05 a.m. the next day in Japan time. It's going to require a little commitment if you want to follow Yoshinobu Yamamoto, if you're a Japanese fan, but many of them will. And the team that signs him, it's not going to be the Orioles, but if it was, suddenly all these people that have never thought about the Orioles before probably are going to be Orioles fans. But again, they're not going to do it. It's about four hours longer to fly from Tokyo to Baltimore compared to LAX. Wouldn't be quite the Otani impact on home attendance, but still, that also would make a difference. It is really too bad. Uh, I'm just going to generously, to Mike Elias, assume that it's Angelos who is the main barrier there, and shame on John Angelos. Uh, I will go ahead and slide right past any other nine-figure anticipated starting pitcher into what will hopefully be more in the comfort range for the Orioles as they are currently uh, operating. The next is a familiar name for Orioles fans. Eduardo Rodriguez, the rare pre-Mike Elias international signing who ended up being traded to the Red Sox for Andrew Miller in 2014. Rodriguez has gone on to a 17.6 BWAR over eight MLB years. That included 3.5 over the past season, where he had a 3.30 ERA with the Tigers. Fangraphs and MLB trade rumors both projecting a four-year contract for Rodriguez $82 million, says Fangraphs, $92 million from MLB trade rumors. Decent peripherals for Rodriguez this year, but he has not topped 160 innings pitched since the 2019 season. Still a four-year contract at those figures should not be beyond the Orioles' comfort level. No draft pick penalty for Rodriguez. I am not terribly interested in seeing this reunion, though, which is not really for any baseball performance reason as... Just a general belief that nothing good would come from signing a guy who was once traded away by the franchise. Basically, fearing what happened in 2023 with Michael Givens, except way more expensive. And this is probably not rational at all. And if the Orioles did somehow sign Rodriguez, I would absolutely talk myself into that. I mean, for crying out loud, I talked myself in very quickly to the Chris Davis contract, which turned into a complete disaster almost immediately. So Rodriguez would probably work out a little bit better than that for 
me uh, in terms of not having an instantly freezing cold take. But in a similar price range to Rodriguez, another player coming over from Japan this winter, Shota Imanaga, a lefty who is several years older than Yamamoto and who does not have this kind of dominant upside. Uh, Imanaga is then expected to get a much smaller contract than Yamamoto, with Fangrass projecting four years and $88 million, while MLB Trade Rumors projects five years and $85 million. Also going to be a posting fee for Imanaga as well. That would perhaps work out to something like uh, $12 to $15 million on top of the contract paid out to his uh, Japanese team, the Bay Stars of, I believe, Yokohama. Uh, You can never be totally sure how Japanese pitchers are going to adjust from going from one start per week to one every five games. And Imanaga has additional question marks regarding how he might be hit by uh, hard by MLB competition as he's already given up a lot of home runs in Japan. The Fangraphs uh, write-up on Imanaga evokes a comparison to Kodai Senga, who was signed by the Mets last winter, had a strong U.S. debut. Uh, they think that Imanaga would just, quote, only have intermittent home run problems instead of intermittent command problems, end quote. And, you know, put a left-handed pitcher with home run issues in front of Baltimore, maybe that would go a little bit better. I think that would be a risk worth taking for the Orioles to potentially get a player who would be uh, maybe superior to an MLB experienced player uh, at a slightly cheaper price because of the uncertainty about uh, translating from Japanese baseball to MLB. I don't expect the Orioles to take it. Again, you know, you would make back some of the money. Imanaga is not on the Yamamoto level, probably, of suddenly instantly making a bunch of new uh, fans of his new MLB team, but it would be something uh, that the Orioles could count on making back, as long as Imanaga was not a complete bust. Now, I don't expect the Orioles to take that risk, so again, I guess it doesn't really matter, but um, even though I know better, I still get my hopes up about the Orioles maybe signing a substantial free agent starting pitcher. And sometime maybe Mike Elias will do it, but it hasn't happened yet, certainly. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. Moving on down the expected contrast contract size list, we arrive at 29-year-old Lucas Giolito, a former top five, top 10 prospect in all of MLB when he was with the Nationals, eventually included in a trade to the White Sox for outfielder Adam Eaton. Giolito had kind of a crazy 2023 season. He was acquired by the Angels after a solid first half with Chicago, then dumped by the Angels after six starts when they gave up on the season completely, then claimed by the Cleveland Guardians in hopes that Giolito would help bolster their push for the AL Central. However, Giolito stunk in both Los Angeles and Cleveland, finished the season with a 4.88 ERA, which is very similar to his 2022 results of a 4.90 ERA. But he had a strong run from 2019 through 2021 with a 3.47 combined ERA. That is a 129 ERA plus or 29% better than league average over that three-year stretch. Uh, Giolito ran into more problems with command with the Angels and Guardians than he'd ever showed previously in his career. MLB Trade Rumors predicts kind of a 
bet on himself shorter term contract for Giolito of two years and $44 million. Fangraphs seeing four years, $60 million. I think if Giolito ends up signing like the two-year deal so he can become a free agent again sooner in hopes of getting more guaranteed money the next time around, I'd really like to see the Orioles play at that level. $22 million for each of two years. Not a huge outlay in cost or in cost over time. He would be gone from the Orioles' payroll books before Adley Rutschman gets beyond one year of arbitration and before Gunnar Henderson gets into arbitration at all. So I think that would be a fine time to have a $20 million uh, dropping back off the books. I would, however, be nervous about a Giolito signing because the Orioles' track record in 2023 of let's fix a guy with command problems, uh, it didn't go great with Shintaro Fujinami or with Jack Flaherty. So, I mean, more than the money, the risk with Giolito, or, I mean, any pitcher the Orioles sign, like more than money, the risk is if the Orioles sign him and he is no help to their contending with the current core uh, plus prospects who are expected to show up in 2024. That is the situation the Orioles need to avoid. They don't really have to worry about the money. They've just got to sign or trade for the right guy. So the uh, the team is actually getting helped by their starting pitcher addition in a way that they were not helped by, like, Cole Irvin or Flaherty. Um Kyle Gibson, you know, he didn't have the greatest results, but he did do the job of eating innings. But again, I mean, the Orioles need to do better than just, eh, let's have any guy who can eat innings now, I think, going into 2024. They need maybe an actually good pitcher. Uh, That would be radical, sign or trade for an actually good pitcher. I know, I know it sounds crazy, but I, it's, it's what they've got to find a way to do, I think. Uh, One other player who just hit the free agent list after being non-tendered by his previous team on Friday is Brandon Woodruff, recently of the Brewers. He was not tendered because he was due for an $11 or more salary in his final year of arbitration for 2024, and he's going to miss most or all of the season due to having shoulder surgery that cut his 2023 season short. So it's anticipated he will end up signing a two-year contract somewhere that will reflect that he's unlikely to pitch this year, uh, going to then need to give the team something in 2025 for taking on his salary in 2024. It couldn't be the only signing the Orioles make to bolster their rotation since they're going to need the help in 2024, I think. But being the team that stashes him for 2025 in hopes of getting a good season, maybe even a qualifying offer caliber pitching outcome from Woodruff uh, two years from now, I think, again, the team has space to absorb a little short-term dead money. Woodruff has a 2.93 ERA and 3.10 FIP since the start of the 2019 season. That is a 145 ERA plus, 45% better than league average. However, he has only started 30 games or more once in that span of seasons. He will be turning 31 before the start of next season, which, again, he's probably going to miss almost in its entirety. I don't know what to make of something like that. I, you know, I don't envy Elias being in the position of signing a starting pitcher generally because it's a hard thing to get right and mistakes can be costly. This time a year ago, I really wanted to see the Orioles splash on who was thought to be the best available lefty, Carlos Rodon. He ended up getting a $162 million contract over seven years, excuse me, six years from the New York Yankees. And in his first year, uh, he was pretty much a bust. 
He was able to get that contract after a brilliant 2022 with the Giants, but he was hurt and bad in 2023. I mean, the Orioles, they're in a position, I think, where they can afford one mistake, maybe even two mistakes from the standpoint of their payroll. The challenge is just going to be if they sign someone who sucks and he doesn't improve the roster, which is basically the issue at this point, I think, with trading Darrell Ernais for Cole Irvin. Not having Ernais in the infield mix does not figure to hurt the Orioles, but Irvin not living up to being a dependable innings eater as he was in Oakland, that challenged the Orioles in 2023, and it is part of why they're now in a position to make a better signing for 2024 and beyond. When I was discussing Eduardo Rodriguez, I mentioned his lack of a draft pick penalty. So a quick explainer on that. Players who declined the qualifying offer after this season, which teams can extend to their departing free agents, it's one year for next year, about $20 million. Um, If a player declines that, which all seven of the free agents who received them this year did, then when they become free agents, if they sign with a new team, that costs their new team a draft pick. Among the remaining available starting pitchers, that is Otani, again, a special case, Sonny Gray, as well as Blake Snell. Signing any one of those players would cost the Orioles their third highest draft pick, which right now, that would be their competitive balance round A pick. That will be in the early 30s. That is not as bad as giving up, let's say, the number 13 pick to sign Giovanni Gallardo, as Mike Elias's uh, predecessor, Dan Duquette, did. He also gave up draft picks to sign Alex Cobb and Ubaldo Jimenez, neither of which worked out for the Orioles. It is a high pick, especially when you consider that the Orioles have had some success picking uh, in the 30s or 40s. That's where they got Gunnar Henderson. It's where they got Jordan Westberg. Uh, It's also where they got currently less exciting Dylan Beavers. But again, you don't want to just flush away that kind of pick. And if you want to get into some galaxy brain stuff, the Orioles, if they did go crazy and decide to sign one of these players, they could trade the competitive balance pick first. These are the only draft picks that can be traded in the MLB draft. Uh, The Orioles would then forfeit their second round pick instead while getting maybe a little bit of value back for the balance pick. Probably it's not going to matter. The Orioles are not going to sign Gray. They're not going to sign Snell. They're not going to sign Reliever and another former Orioles prospect, Josh Hader. But that is out there if you really want to think about it. Before we wrap up, let's dip into the mailbag. This is from listener Ty, and again, it is on the subject of Orioles starting pitchers, so it fits for today's episode. Ty wrote in when uh, the aftermath of the Orioles getting swept out of the ALDS, and he asked, does Dean Kramer start another playoff game for the Orioles? Will T.L. Hall ever start a playoff game for the Orioles, or will Tyler Wells ever start one? Thank you to Ty for writing in. You can all probably guess where I stand on this question based on this episode so far. It is, as the meme goes, going to be a no from me, dog. I don't believe that Hall will ever make it as a starter. And as I've talked about on this show, I do think his potential for relief is maybe going to be important to the Felix Bautista-less 2024 Orioles bullpen. Wells, you know, I could be talked into Wells a little bit more. He was really good from April to June. Uh, Of course, he was the MLB leader in whip for a lot of that time, walks plus hits per innings pitched, but he was just so bad once he passed his previous high for career innings. And I think if the Orioles thought Wells could handle coming back as a starting pitcher, they would have brought him back 
uh, later in July or in August instead of trading for Jack Flaherty, and that they traded for Flaherty and only brought Wells into the bullpen for September, I think tells us what they thought of Wells. I don't know. Maybe it will be different for 2024. Maybe they'll think he'll have a better uh, ability to build up for a full season worth of starts. But for now, I'm not counting on him in that mix, and I don't know that the Orioles should either. As for Kramer, he started 32 games this year. He finished with an ERA plus of exactly 100, perfectly league average. That's not nothing. That, that counts for something. Uh, that said, I do think what we saw from Kramer in the ALDS is why the Orioles should not consider him locked in for anything higher than like the number five spot in the rotation going forward. And if that's how things play out, then I think, or if he's any higher than that, I think that will mean challenges for the Orioles in future regular seasons. And if they make it back into the postseason and then are counting on Dean Kramer, I also think that will be a tough hurdle to overcome there. So it's a no, no across the board. I don't think any one of those guys will from this day forward, start a playoff game for the Orioles. And uh, I think that the reason they need to sign some guy who's good this off season is so they can get a future uh, playoff starter in the way that they didn't get when they signed Kyle Gibson last off season. If you have a question or any kind of Orioles thought for a future episode, you can write to camdencastpod at gmail.com. I've now gotten through my uh, backlog of postseason adjacent emails, so if you write in, you can easily be a part of the next episode. There is nothing else left ahead of you on the pile. Speaking of the next episode, there will be no episode next Monday, November the 27th. I will be taking the Thanksgiving weekend off entirely. Possibly, if I feel motivated, there will be an episode next Tuesday, the 28th instead, but it may be a two-week hiatus. That may depend on whether there's something uh, interesting I can think of to talk about between now and uh, next week. Either way, thank you very much for listening today. I hope you will be back for the next episode, either next Tuesday or two weeks from today. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. This is Mark Brown signing off.